think back to the start of my formal career in diversity, equity, and inclusion and reflect a lot on how different that entry was, then my initial interest focused on a career in HR. I know it sounds a little strange, but stay with me. For me, moving into HR was actually a decision built on possibilities, a desire to help and engage in a function of business that really spoke to me and what I believed to be my core strengths. But, you know, as any HR practitioner would know, there is truly an expectation versus reality moment where your desire to be of service is often married with the reality of how truly awful people can be. And how building meaningful influence on business decisions takes a lot of time and often a depth of seniority and access and how bogged down one can get in administrative nightmares. However, the work had many moments of being rewarding and my nearly 10 years of working in HR was fulfilling as often as it was frustrating. And my foray into diversity, equity, and inclusion was a really different story, one that was birthed from a place of deep frustration and a recognition of the lack of representation that I had had or didn't have any representation in my entire HR career. Now, the irony of that has never been lost on me, given the way HR touts the virtues of diversity yet is most often made up of middle-aged white women. The foray into DNI wasn't initially rooted in social justice, at least not in the way that I had been really aware of at the time, but it was rooted in wanting to see change for myself and for other women that looked like me, other women of color, now and in the future. And if it isn't obvious by the title of this episode, The frustration continues, although in ways that sometimes surprise me, but because I'm not a pessimistic jerk, I won't leave you in a space of doom and gloom. My intention with this episode, and you can let me know if I've achieved it, is to balance out the realities, to help you kind of take off any rose-colored glasses that you might have on and see the work for what it really is. And then find a way to stay the course should you decide to move ahead. At the end of the day, this is truly my life's work. And it's my third or fourth career pivot that I really believe is where I'm meant to stay. Even if it's hard and incredibly overwhelming at times. There are those moments when you get feedback on the impact of your work from someone who most needs to be seen and to feel safe. And that keeps you going. I hope the same for you, should you decide to take the leap. And I hope you'll hang around to hear the good, the bad, the ugly, as well as the possible. And I'll start by saying that your integrity in this work can and will be challenged, no matter how well-intentioned of an organization you may be in. I'm in a great place to do my work now safely and with a lot of space to bring authentic expression forward. However, I'm still up against the norms of traditional business culture, which if you've followed along on this journey with the Equity Gap or with the Color Gap podcast, you know that is in many ways in complete opposition to the premise and the work of equity. 
and truly traditional business culture is baked in white supremacy. And white supremacy is a system that is so normalized and embedded in our everyday lives that it often goes completely unnoticed and unchallenged, especially in the workplace where it's often veiled behind good intentions and the striving for profit over purpose. And challenging business as usual in the name of equity in any way, even in well-intentioned workplaces, means a whole lot of resistance. And for some people, being put at risk for being too much, too aggressive, and too difficult for talking about the elephant in the room. Your daily battle will be questioning whether you can say what needs to be said and questioning whether your work is only advancing a performative agenda. Your interest in bringing social justice to the workplace where it is genuinely needed the most will often go unheard, and you'll be reminded over and over again in subtle and not so subtle ways that the perspective you bring requires a business strategy and to be taken seriously with those in charge, often overlooking the people impact that is most positively impacted by a social justice lens in the workplace. And according to Michelle Mijung Kim, the business case for DEI leads to pandering, things like rainbow washing, prematurely giving up, holding back resources required to do the real work, and ultimately it's not a sustainable why. The hyper-intellectualization of equity work in our data-obsessed capitalistic society has extracted all sense of humanity from this work. We are robbing ourselves of the opportunity to create real, meaningful change when we continue to rely on the narrative of capitalism spewed by those in positions of power. She says, stop it. Stop seeing people as human capital. It is violent and destructive. Get the foundation right so we can get to the right outcomes. And her words resonate so deeply because there is a constant dance that you must play as a DNI practitioner to advance the work in organizations, but play the game of advancing the business case that is ultimately rooted in upholding comfort where you'll spend more time upholding the comfort of those in power than often doing the real work, where a risk lens will be taken to create a false sense of equality for employees over the desire to take an approach that protects the most marginalized in your workplace. If you think about where most organizations operate, they focus on equity-based decisions that are actually just based primarily on mass interest or impact. Let me take you down a slight tangent that I think illustrates my point even further. Consider the traditional union with its roots in social justice and worker rights who can and should play a significant role in the diversity, equity, and inclusion mandate. However, unions represent the majority interest and from my experience, rarely take an intersectional approach to considering minority needs in their fight. According to Foley and Parker in their publication, Unions, Equity, and the Path to Renewal, all the way back in 2010, 2.2 million Canadian women belonged to a union for a unionization rate of 30.9%. By comparison, fewer than 2 million men belonged to a union for a unionization rate of 28.2%. 
in spite of the fact that women were now the dominant sex in the union movement, the voices of women and the perspectives they bring have been and continue to be marginalized and undervalued. Further, in the 2019 publication, an intersectional labor movement must resist colorblind approaches to organizing by Tamara Lee. Tamara goes on to state that unions have unfortunate but real and enduring historical legacies of being on the wrong side of justice for marginalized identity groups. She goes on to say to truly bend the arc of the economic universe toward justice, we must explicitly reject the melting pot approaches to things like class solidarity, radically confront colorblindness in our strategic organizing frameworks, and ensure identity consciousness in our conceptualizations of justice. A transformational reimagining of the labor movement's goals must acknowledge that an injury to one is not felt the same by all. Discrimination and inequity, both inside and outside the labor movement, are amplified at the intersections of workers' social identities, including their race, gender, sexual orientation, and migrant status. This fact should be a centerpiece of labor organizing, not an afterthought. Yet, in my experience, this afterthought is often the union experience, something that upholds the knowledge of those at the bargaining table and likely represents the comfortable interest and identities of those in union leadership and those that are in the majority. Each conversation on equity-based decisions around policy, benefits offerings, and the like will more than likely be met with, at best, ignorant oversight, or at worst, downright resistance to its ultimate lack of alignment with core business sense. You'll spend a lot of time in a place of trying to convince those in power about the business case for equity-based decision-making. And in 2023, with the world literally falling apart in front of our eyes, with marginalized communities carrying such a heavy emotional tax, forced to pretend that all is fine when their very existence and their human rights are at risk. Most companies don't and won't acknowledge the significance of the impact of their influence on community, politics, and human rights with their purchasing power, their size and their presence because they spend so much time focusing on an insular approach that advances their own agenda above all else. And one of the most unsettling elements of this work is that once you see how everything is connected back to white supremacy, you can't unsee it and it can feel really, really dire and overwhelming. I say that in a way that might sound dramatic, But when you really break it down, the connections are so clear. Racism, police violence, pay gaps, healthcare inequity, capitalism, climate change, all are connected to the system of white supremacy in a way that can be overwhelming to engage in attempting to change. I illustrate this point by pointing to a conversation on white supremacy, power, and control. According to Robin D'Angelo, author of White Fragility in her 2017 piece titled, No, I Won't Stop Saying White Supremacy. The system of white supremacy rests on the historical and current accumulation of structural power that privileges, centralizes, and elevates white people as a group. 
if, for example, she notes that we look at the racial breakdown of the people who controlled U.S. institutions in 2017, we see that between 2016 and 2017, Congress was 90% white. Governors were 96% white. Top military advisors were 100% white. The president and vice president at the time of the U.S. were 100% white. The current president of the United States cabinet was 97, 91% white. The people who decided which TV shows we saw were 93% white. The people who decided which books were read were 90% white. The people who decided what news was covered, 85% white. People who decided which music was produced, 95% white. Teachers were 85% white. Full-time college professors, 84% white. Owners of men's pro football teams, 97% white. Now, Robin goes on to say that these numbers are not a matter of good people versus bad people. They are a matter of power, control, and dominance by a racial group with a particular self-image, worldview, and set of interests in the position to disseminate that image and worldview and protect those interests across the entire society. The dominance of white supremacy in our world is the reason why residential schools are only now mainstream knowledge and have been erased from our Canadian history books for so many years. Why capitalism exists because it creates a justification for the exploitation of marginalized communities that is necessary for a handful of primarily white individuals to chase profit and hoard the means of production. It's the reason why climate change solutions aren't being enacted at the speed that they need to be, as they are directly opposed to the ideology of separation and individualism that is core to fundamental white supremacy. I could go on and on, but you likely get the point. And what's immensely frustrating is that most people in positions of power and influence to do something and make decisions that advance equity and decenter whiteness don't have this type of nuanced thinking when it comes to the workplace cultures that they curate. To talk about such nuance and the interconnectedness often puts you in a position of talking ideals over realities and at risk of being seen as not pragmatic enough to do the work, the work that is often touted in being slow to be sustainable, and that often is most that can be handled to uphold that comfort without unearthing that white guilt. And I speak to my non-white DNI practitioners with a majority of this conversation and I tell you from my own experience that you may have to navigate really complex feelings of working with white DNI leaders who have the privilege of oversimplifying complex experiences that they are often tasked with leading and solving. They are overrepresented in this space, not merely because they have intersections to their own identity around sexuality, gender identity, disability, and neurodiversity but because they make those in positions of influence feel more comfortable. They look, sound, and speak like most of people in power. And they lack the critical thinking on hiring decisions, 
or they often use this overexcused idea of a limited talent pool of Black, Indigenous, and people of color in this space. An excuse that's all too easy and convenient as a way to leave us out of leadership roles. It will often leave you feeling extremely trepidatious and deeply discouraged. There are so many white practitioners in this space who brazenly celebrate Canada Day without the mere acknowledgement of the atrocious history of our country to Indigenous people or the day's roots in Chinese exclusion through enacting of the Chinese Immigration Act, or who publicly mourned the passing of Queen Elizabeth without taking into consideration or acknowledging the mere presence of the violent exploitation and generations of harm at the hands of British colonialism on many communities within the global majority. My viewpoint here may be skewed through a lens of a DNI practitioner that is based in Calgary, Alberta, and Canada, a conservative leaning province where most of the DNI practitioners and leaders that I come across are white women. So maybe take that with this in mind. But regardless, the very advent of DNI practitioners that are white is something I see all too often. And I often see coupled with that a lack of accountability or simple acknowledgement of understanding their race-based power in capitalizing off the trauma of Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Without the mere acknowledgement of this, the solutions that are presented are often that of neutrality, that are safe and stay stuck in places where concepts like diversity of thought thrive, where the business case for DNI is the primary focus and where the conversations often stop at gender equity, or where things like intersectionality and its dire need for mere acknowledgement and how solutions are designed to mentor and advance leaders and organizations is often ignorantly overlooked. And I don't say this lightly or say that there is no space for white DNI practitioners, but the oversaturation of them in this space where even the most basic understanding of intersectionality leads us back to racial equity as the most meaningful pathway to solutions and means that many of the voices and influences of non-white DNI practitioners gets overlooked. The power structures that keep white supremacy alive and well are far too alive and well in the space of DNI, the irony of which should not be overlooked or lost on any of us. But as promised, I'm not going to keep you in the space of doom and gloom as I need you to show up to do the work that so desperately needs your passion, your voice, your perseverance to advance. By knowing the realities and balancing that out with foundational elements that keep you on course, it means you have a stronger chance of staying in it. So I want to offer up some things to consider around how to do the work that calls to your heart from a place of balancing your own real self-care, prioritizing community, and as Glennon Doyle says, enacting a strategy to sometimes just turn off your humanity, that natural ache of being human, to really just be able to manage the work long-term. And first, if you've been around on the ride of this podcast for the last few years, 
You know that I'm a massive proponent of therapy and real healing work, but not just any kind of therapy. Therapy that is culturally competent, where you don't have to explain certain experiences to a therapist that doesn't understand your experience in the world. I say this primarily for the non-white DNI practitioners that are listening because of the weight of the world you carry to do the work from a place of integrity is heavy. And as my friend Lucille says, I'm not spending my hard-earned money on teaching a therapist about my lived experiences. I went through three therapists to find the one who provides me what I need for this stage of my life. And she happens to be a woman of color who also comes from the same religious community as me. And I can't express enough what a game changer it has been to sit in a space of reflection and healing with someone who understands the nuances of my life and cultural upbringing. She provides perspective and advice that isn't commonly shelled out that, you know, you could easily just find online. She understands that things like setting boundaries as a child of immigrants and a woman of color, those things are exceedingly difficult. And her approach is baked in helping me see the possibilities while reminding me that as one person to stay the course, I need to prioritize all of the things that are counterproductive to advancement and success. Without this objective relationship that provides a consistent and necessary reframe, I can end up easily gaslighting myself and believing all of the things that the system of misogyny and white supremacy want me to believe. I can't emphasize the importance of culturally competent therapy and healing work enough. Further, fostering community has been a game changer for my sense of inspiration, motivation, and even for my feelings of belonging in this space. There are so many incredible practitioners in the space that help you consider the possibilities beyond the confines of even your own geography. I learn the most about the work I do specifically for Black women, and I have a multitude of Black women DNI practitioners and leaders that have informed so much of my passion for this space. I'll of course include a link in the show notes of all of the incredible humans that provide me a sense of feeling seen and keep me inspired. They are a community of people that I've created and curated in my head, and I don't know many of them personally, yet they've had an incredibly profound impact on me through the content they share and the space that they decide to take up. They give me so much permission to do the same. They've also served a meaningful purpose in such a growing practice that has only really gotten the attention it has deserved post the murder murder of George Floyd in 2020. A true light amongst a sea of practitioners that often like to keep it safe. I've also found my people amongst engagements I take on outside of work through mentoring with organizations like Accelerate Her Future and the Loran Scholarship. I've gone ahead and also carefully curated my energy and time outside of work to be focused on spaces that fill my cup, where I'm not tiptoeing around the real talk and where I can see the impact of my perspectives in a way that allows those insights to be seen and taken care of without fear of retribution. Also, equally important is finding solace in things outside of work that I mentioned Glennon Doyle noted that allows me to be able to turn off my humanity 
if even just for a moment. And I say this with a caveat and a note on my privilege as a South Asian, Canadian-born and educated woman who has spent several years mastering the art of corporate assimilation purely for survival. I have the privilege to turn things off when needed and lean on the quiet niceness that can sometimes keep me small and is so deeply associated with the really harmful model minority trope where I can stay in my lane and not ruffle feathers so I can survive. Others may not be so lucky. This is also a time to bring back up the concept of rest as resistance, something birthed by the works and leadership of women like Audre Lorde, who note that caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. One of the most profound pieces of work in this space that I've come across recently is that of the NAP ministry and the work of Trisha Hersey and her book, Rest is Resistance, a manifesto. I'll link her work in the show notes and her words remind us of the rebellion that is rooted in taking ourselves off the violent cycle of grand culture, but normalizing the need for rest without purpose, rest without explanation or justification is what allows us to move towards liberation from an exhausted state. And an exhausted state will be the sad reality of the work of social justice, especially for Black and Indigenous women who carry the weight of injustice on their shoulders like no one else. And something regardless of your identity that you won't be able to avoid unless you intentionally prioritize it. Trisha asks a question you need to ask yourself if you're in this space, and specifically in this space as a marginalized human. How can we access pleasure and joy and liberation if we're too tired to experience it? For me, rest goes into play and spaces where my energies are directed to existing in harmony with just existing, without any preconceived ideals of what that existence needs to be aligned with where I can imprint my body on my couch watching Bravo and reality TV to tune out the world, where I have guilt-free indulgence that is rooted in listening to what my body needs. It's recharging from a place of pure gluttony, but not apologizing or justifying it. Often, it's a hard-fought space to get into, but once there, the payoff is immense. And lastly, I need you to keep yourself so grounded in the why of your work that it keeps you focused on the possibilities. I know for me, that means the moments of feedback you get from the people that most needs your advocacy to feel seen and to thrive are what keep me going. My why is rooted in doing work that ensures our most marginalized employees feel safe and can thrive at work. And I do that through connecting the dots on how equity and inclusion impact the entire employee experience. And I'm unapologetic about that. Staying grounded in that helps me push through when I'm navigating conversations that go nowhere with those in power who are too scared to do the real work or to ask or answer the questions that help uncover the incredible nuance of this work. I think about the feedback from the most marginalized team members that the work matters to and that it's made them feel safer and more seen at work. It keeps me going and it likely will for you too. 
So did I achieve what I told you I would? Did I paint the reality of the work with a balanced lens on how you can do the work from a place of purpose and self-care? I'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions to create your own community of sharing and learning. I'd love to hear your experiences as a DNI practitioner. What resonated? What felt disconnected from your own reality? Connect with me through socials or through email, all linked in the notes. And if you found any of this insightful, if you made, if it made you think, if it made you deeply uncomfortable, even just a little bit uncomfortable in a good way, it's always appreciated if you take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts so it helps my small space and influence on the internet become just a little bit bigger. And until next time, take care.